Welcome to episode 99 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today uh, by, actually, I have already finished interviewing our guest, who is Amit Ashkenazi, the legal advisor to the Israeli uh, National Cyber Bureau. Uh, um, and you'll be hearing that interview uh, uh, shortly. Uh, the news roundup will be brought to you by Alan Cohn, formerly the head of strategy for DHS and number two at the DHS policy office, now of counsel to Steptoe. Jason Weinstein, formerly with Justice, uh, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions and is now doing criminal and civil uh, litigation here at Steptoe. Uh, Maury Shank, our all everything in London, uh, former managing partner, advisor to you, to us on European tech and cybersecurity issues, and a private equity investor and director in technology companies. And I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice this law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump in. We are sitting on the cusp of the failure or success or uh, muddling through of the safe harbor talks, and uh, the word is it could go either way. Maury, what do you hear? I hear it could go either way. Supposedly, <laughs> the, they were negotiating over the weekend, and the U.S. Uh, team is waiting in Brussels. Uh, Commissioner Jourova, who's been negotiating for the European Commission, is briefing the Parliament um, today. And then the Article 29 Working Party is going to meet. And uh, tomorrow, maybe the next day, there will be an announcement of whether there has been a deal. And, it, um, you know, there's some, um, there's some evidence that a deal could happen. There's also some rumors that there was separation on some significant issues like whether the U.S. system really is equivalent and what sort of review of U.S. privacy decisions will be available. I think it's too close to call. Okay, if it's too close to call, Europe will cave. That's my prediction. Uh, uh, they, uh, they like having this issue, and they like being able to beat the United States around the head and shoulders, uh, but they don't really want to have their ability to enforce a data embargo tested, and the European Commission has a lot of turf to recover, and uh, doing this deal is part of recovering that turf. So I think tie goes to the um, to a deal here, but uh, um, uh, the thing that will keep them from doing it is a fear that they can't actually deliver it, which they could learn from the European Parliament or maybe from the Article 29 Working Party, but my guess is um, they've got too much at stake in some ways more than the U.S. does uh, uh, to uh, to turn down a plausible deal. And the deal that's been offered is plausible. Uh, they're, they're just carping about the details, if I can uh, uh, summarize what I've seen of the negotiations. Well, that's a, a bold prediction, Stuart. You're a bold guy. Um, I, I think there could be a deal, and I think you're, you're right that whether they can sell it is the key issue. And the um, the key issue for me is whether various people, you know, the European Parliament or ultimately the European Court of Justice can uh, swallow the fact that U.S. surveillance legislation, particularly after Snowden, is actually more restrictive of government access to data than uh, most European countries' legislation is. Of course, there's still concerns about misbehavior of the uh, by the NSA um, and others, so... Uh, 
and maybe fears that really there's some trick here. Um, so who knows? But if they can swallow that, or if the commission can convince people that their deal deals with that, then um, hopefully we're back where we were. Well, what the European Court of Justice ought to be swallowing is an enormous helping of Crow, because you know they, they 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 base that decision in part on like Guardian clippings, for God's sake. I mean, I wouldn't rely on the Guardian to tell me what the weather is. <laughs> I, I and yet they said, oh, oh, the Guardian says it must be true. I it it was you know, and they reached out to make this decision without building a record because they just wanted so badly to do it. And then they had no evidence, so they were using clippings uh, uh, written by people who had a, a strong interest in, a, in an ideological outcome, which uh, uh, they, they more or less got. So I, my guess is that uh, taking this back to the European Court of Justice and reminding them just how little in the way of factual basis they had for their last decision uh, would be salutary for all of the institutions involved. But uh, a, there's, a, a, there's a pretty good uh, report out by Sidley and Austin that uh, talks about that, uh, about the, uh, the difference between the U.S. and the uh, uh, European standards and makes, a, makes the case, uh, which has been made many times, that uh, U.S. standards are higher than, uh, uh, than European in this area, but uh, uh, we won't know uh, by the time this uh, actually hits the uh, um, the wires sometime uh, on Tuesday. Uh, maybe uh, there will have been enough in the way of leaks to know where this is going, uh, and it will compete with the Iowa caucuses for uh, uh, the attention of, of the American public. I think we know how that will turn out. Has Donald Trump waited in the safe harbor? I haven't heard. Uh, he hasn't, uh, but really, uh, I could I could write the tweets right. for him because uh, uh, <laughs> uh, you know he is a reliable. If you really want, I've, I've been thinking about this. I think he's essentially a conservative Democrat from 1973. Uh, you know, all about union members and uh, 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 the jobs of working class Americans it's, uh, and a strong uh, uh, U.S. Um, go-it-alone kind of attitude uh, that trade deals are bad and uh, uh, immigration is bad. Uh, so I'm quite confident that uh, properly briefed his view of the Europeans would be indistinguishable from mine. Well, we should probably start out by telling him the safe harbor has nothing to do with Mexican immigrants. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. If he comes out in favor of a deal, that probably won't help a deal. <laughs> yeah, no. So, right. <laughs> I think we can be We confident. hope he'll stay quiet at least for the next few days. I, well, maybe we, could, maybe we could get him to condemn it. That, that would uh, raise its prospects uh, in the eyes of the Europeans and probably this administration as well. Um, all right. Um, part of the deal or the one piece of this deal that has come together and that we're starting to see more of is the Judicial Redress Act and the umbrella agreement uh, that uh, DOJ reached with the EU uh, um, that calls for the uh, Judicial Redress Act. Uh, uh, I don't know, Jason, if you looked at this, the, uh, the umbrella agreement is more or less designed to make sure that the U.S. is deemed adequate for uh, uh, law enforcement information exchanges. Um, and it requires uh, that um, uh, people whose information is in the hands of law enforcement agencies get the benefit of um, the Privacy Act, essentially, which they don't currently do. 
Well, yeah, I thought that it was uh, essentially an attempt to shoehorn in the things that the administration included in the Data Privacy Bill of Rights, but that were never actually implemented into law. The right of access, the right of redress, the right to rectify your data, uh, errors in your data. Um, Wait, in the last year of an administration taking your policies and writing them into an agreement with a friendly country? Uh, <laughs> that's unheard of. I can't believe that. I think it's a, the grand tradition of legacy building. Um, but, yeah, I, I think you're right. These are all things that are established in Europe and not established in, in a legal way in the United States, although they're all part of policy uh, privacy principles that are broadly uh, supported, um, and, and it attempts to essentially codify them. So what what I enjoyed about this is um, I had uh, written uh, one of my uh, endless series on uh, European hypocrisy. It's like a beat, not not a not a, not a topic. Uh, um, and I had kind of uh, trashed the Judicial Redress Act, uh, and uh, it had been passed by uh, uh, House Judiciary, which is you know looking less and less. Uh, 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 useful um, uh, without much in the way of uh, uh, change. But when it got to Senate Judiciary, uh, uh, the, uh, a couple of people who had read my remarks actually called me up and said, is there a way to improve it? And about the same time, uh, Europe was uh, uh, bailing on the safe harbor and threatening to cut it off. Uh, uh, and uh, um, a number of uh, uh, Republicans in particular on the Judiciary Committee um, became enamored of the idea that we should not let the uh, Europeans simultaneously get the benefit of the Judicial Redress Act and screw our companies uh, over safe harbor. And uh, uh, they added a, a conditionality to the bill that says uh, this, this bill only takes effect if, in fact, uh, uh, we uh, uh, our companies get the benefit of safe harbor, which I thought was a, a nice thing simply because it shows that Congress is finally beginning to see where Europe is on this and to realize that it's all about sticking it to the United States and, and our, our tech giants. I completely agree. I actually thought, uh, you know, maybe we don't need the safe harbor deal now because we we, uh, we basically are laying down, down a marker to these countries that if they want to be able to share data, they've got to, they've yeah. got to agree to commercial transfers. Um, it'd be interesting to see if the amendment um, uh, makes it all the way, but uh, but I thought it was kind of an elegant solution and, and, as you said, does indicate that Congress is waking up to the fact that Europe was trying to have it both ways. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, the umbrella agreement. I sort of agree with you. It's it, it's all about giving stuff away to Europe. There's it, it, we we get an adequacy determination, but one that can be taken away in individual contexts right. at any time. So right. it's it's basically um, uh, we give, and they say, well, thank you. Uh, based on that, uh, there's a good chance we won't be asking for you for anything for at least a year or two. That's right. That's right. Although it wasn't the most, uh, I, you know, I thought the Judicial Address Act uh, uh, amendment was was interesting. The other interesting thing I thought uh, that wasn't safe harbor related, but was cybersecurity related, was uh, the the uh, effort by some groups to uh, uh, to uh, support a movement to repeal the Cybersecurity Act. Ah, yes, um, Justin uh, Amash, the yes. ineffable uh, Justin Amash. <laughs> uh, a whole group, you know, the usual suspects, all lining up to, uh, to say that the bill should have been subject to more of a debate and was hastily added to the omnibus spending bill. Uh, First of all, to think that a bill that took basically five years to get adopted was hastily adopted is ridiculous. And and there were calls by these groups on Congress to, th to throw the bill out and to start a new conversation, although the conversation has been the same conversation for right. five years. I, it was impressive because I thought that the fastest effort to repeal 
uh, a bill was Obamacare, but this this is this is actually even beat faster. the Obamacare records. So. Uh, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it, uh, it, I think uh, you do kind of wonder because it's sort of pointless uh, uh, to do this. Uh, the the bill passed like 300 to uh, 100 more or less uh, in the House, uh, so it isn't likely to get repealed, and right. nobody really wants to go back and do this again. Um, and so you wonder why people are leading with their chin, saying we want something, and then you know they're going to look like idiots in a year uh, uh, having asked for it. But I think the Privacy groups have made enormous amounts of hay out of claiming that the USA Patriot uh, Act was hastily adopted uh, and that it was really just a result of panic and nobody read it and yada, yada, yada. I remember that bill, and it was negotiated line by line with Leahy staffers, none of whom wanted to do most of the things that were in there and who pulled a bunch of stuff out of the original draft. So um, uh, the idea it was uh, hastily adopted was also kind of bogus, but uh, it's now everybody's assumption. It's what it, it, it practically there's practically a, mac, a macro that says hastily adopted yeah. Patriot Act. Yeah, it's just become part of the accepted narrative, even if it's not true. Yeah. All right. Um, and um, the DHS is uh, uh, and its cybersecurity efforts are making headlines and maybe not in a good way. GAO, which of course is not in the business of saying, what a great job you did, uh, has said about Einstein that uh, there are a lot of problems. Uh, And Alan, you were there recently. Uh, uh, How seriously should we be taking GAO's statements about Einstein? Well, I think if you look at the... Well, first, what is Einstein? Yeah. (laughs) So Einstein is one of several... Uh, major programs that the Department of Homeland Security administers for the U.S. government uh, to protect uh, federal civilian networks, kind of referred to as the .gov networks. Uh, And so if you think of the basic suite of cybersecurity software that any large organization would have, this is meant to – Einstein, together with other pieces, are meant to roughly approximate. So my my – sense about this has been, it's fair to call Einstein intrusion detection, which, you know, was state of the art in 2002, um, and that it aspires to be intrusion prevention, which is to say, not only do you get an alert when something bad happens, but you actually get to stop it before it uh, fully uh, develops, uh, which would be state of art 2008, 2009. Um, and um, they haven't quite implemented the prevention side of it. Right. And so if you look at the at the GAO report first, um, you know GAO made, makes the point of praising DHS at the beginning, which is always a bad, always a worse song. It's right? <laughs> right. always a butt coming. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, right. devoted significant resources uh, with the lofty goals. Um, they then break out uh, exactly those pieces: the intrusion detection, the prevention, and then analytics and information sharing on intrusion detection. It's the most fully developed. Um, provides the ability to detect known malicious patterns of, of activity on agency networks, but uh, they point out things which, you know, were known and suspected about the program uh, all along. It, it only monitors certain um, uh, certain streams right. of traffic, uh, email traffic largely. It doesn't get into web-based 
uh, and things of that nature. It is fully signature based. Oh, so so it does it, it it looks at email incoming, but it does not look at uh, the websites you might visit where malware could be drive by downloaded. So this is all coming. This is all part of the coming, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but not on the uh, uh, on the here yet. And um, uh, and then there are issues with the way that it ingests, but not just classified signatures, but just open source right. indicators. And then the report goes downhill from there. Oh, God. Okay. So, uh, uh, and so, you know, there are statistics in the, in the document, um, you know, that, that um, there are 23 federal agencies uh, supposed to be covered by Einstein. Uh, only five of those 23 are receiving intrusion prevention services. There's a statistic that there were only 74 alerts put out to uh, government mm-hmm. agencies, of which only 50-some-odd were acted on, and only really 25 were seen as useful. Um, and so the big, you know, the, the – and so there, there's the, – the report is littered with, with statistics like that. What's interesting – what's most interesting about it is it does confirm many of the fears that people had about the system, which is that exactly you said we've architected and put through the federal procurement and acquisition process a system optimized to 2002 – Intended to get to 2008, um, and not really anywhere near adopting, even adopting or even able to adopt technology as it's coming out now. But you know, look, uh, better better 2009 than. 2002. Uh, so, uh, and uh, the only way this is going to happen is if we learn every time how bad it is and resolve that we will fix those mistakes at a strategic level. Uh, and and I guess one of my uh, one of my observations is if a lot of agencies aren't getting these services, I'm willing to bet it's as much on them as on DHS. Well, and it's interesting. Um, some of the agencies are procuring more than this themselves right. and just taking the heat from OMB and whoever that they're investing in potentially duplicative products. Others, yes, are fighting uh, DHS tooth and nail right. for control over access into their networks or being second-guessed on their security. Um, and wait so DHS they, is fighting dis- on all fronts. Wait till they discover that the only way we're going to be able to spot exfiltration of data is to break uh, SSL connections to every single site that every single employee in your uh, government agency um, is going to and take the credentials and uh, look at the content. So that means that every single porn site that people are visiting from any agency in the federal government is going to be known to DHS. Uh, This is probably going to make the agencies, the other agencies, even slower to cooperate with DHS. Well, that's and that's the problem. And and. You know, the natural tendency, as you know, is nobody really wants to listen to any other agency. Yes. But the fact that, yes, you then glean insights on what another agency's employees are doing, uh, where its network vulnerabilities are, what the impact of its investments are, this is nothing that any federal agency wants to provide another uh, with the ability to see except under real duress. So I saw that uh, uh, Secretary Johnson rose to the defense of uh, Einstein implementation sort of I mean, it was it was it was a, a constrained endorsement of uh, uh, where uh, uh, the program was it was it was sort of an a for effort yes. for the team and certainly there's a lot of effort being expended but it was also uh, as much also a, a, an acknowledgement that the system is not as far along 
as I think anybody would like it to be. Uh, and that as much as there are other, you know, worthy uh, undertakings going on within that, that programmatic area, like continuous diagnostics and mitigation, which is kind of the, 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 the whole the shining right. star that people uh, hook themselves to, there still needs to be either a real objective to the Einstein program or a phasing it out in favor of more uh, up-to-date technologies. Yeah. So. Okay, well, uh, there's a there's a story that'll become a beat forever, uh, is my guess. Uh, um, it, it's it, but nobody else is going to do it, so I think DHS is stuck with this job, and it'll, it'll be an enormous contribution to their budget if they can manage to continue to do it more or less credibly. Well, yes, and and I think the more credibility that the department can show, the more true progress towards metrics and and even and some. You know, as the secretary, as you, you you intoned about the secretary's statement, the more DHS can take on itself. Okay, that was you know we're not throwing good money after bad, or we're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna take steps that need to be taken. The more credibility the department will get in an area, as you said, that no one else really wants to do. Right. So. You know what the department needs to master is what the FBI has always mastered. Failing upward. <laughs> well, in a way, when when I was the department, if the FBI got a report like this that said they did something bad. If, if the report said they did something good, they go to Congress and say, we need more money to keep doing it. If the report said they did something bad, they go to Congress and say, they need even more money to fix it. Yes. Uh, either way, they get money. Yeah. Uh, so the DHS needs to learn from that. But. And I, I suspect that they they have learned. It's just what they what they don't have is the presumption of uh, uh, strong performance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so uh, these things hurt them more than the, yeah. they hurt the FBI. Okay. Um, wrapping up up, you know, uh, not a lot of news. I, I see the House Oversight Committee is going to investigate the Juniper Code anomalies, uh, uh, which is not surprising except that it's House Oversight because this is a highly classified area, and uh, uh, I'm surprised that uh, that uh, in the in- House Intel has ceded that, uh, that turf. Um, uh, and uh, crypto. Uh, more crypto news. Uh, anything worth reporting? It, it, not exactly man bites dog uh, stuff. Uh, you, you know, DOJ and uh, the, the Attorney General and, and a commissioner of the FTC both spoke at the State of the Net conference uh, uh, recently, and and both spoke about the same issue, and both shockingly came at it from very different points of view. Uh, the Attorney General said, you know, made the case for why law enforcement needs, uh, with a warrant, to be able to get access to electronic evidence and unencrypted communication. Uh, provided they go through appropriate legal process that is designed to protect privacy. And shockingly, the FTC's emphasis was more on the privacy. Than Actually, I think it's kind of shocking that they thought they had a dog in the fight. Oh, uh, I'm not shocked. I'm not surprised they thought they had a dog in the fight. They, I, we have yet to find a fight that they don't want to <laughs> dog in. Fair enough. Um, but, but, but they're really basically going after somebody else's mission, uh, yes. uh, saying, we think your mission should be harder. Right. Uh, you know, I, I was having flashbacks. I was reading some of the news coverage of the conference to all the different times when I would try to get either a speech or testimony through the clearance process, and and DOJ would put in the language that was you know pro law enforcement, and the Commerce Department would always push back and say it was too pro law enforcement, right. not enough about privacy, and it's the same it's the same drama that plays out over and over again. Um, uh, you know, and, and now we're looking at these, this bill that, that would purport to create an encryption commission because, of course, yeah. whenever we have a, a problem we can't solve, the solution is a, a commission. Um, and why people think that that will actually advance the ball as opposed to issue a report that could have been written 20 years ago uh, is, is beyond me. But 
But I think there's there's hope that if you tell them really we mean it, you have to come up with something uh, that maybe they'll come up with something. But uh, I, I, it is going to people are going to go in with very strong views that it'll be hard to move them. You know, I think the only way that that there's actual progress made between in in these ongoing negotiations between the government and the companies is if the companies actually fear legislation that will force them to do something they don't want to do. Right. And until that happens, there won't be any. There's no incentive for anybody to do anything. I think that's probably right. Uh, all right. Our guest uh, this afternoon uh, is uh, Amit Ashkenazi. Uh, uh, Amit uh, is currently the general counsel of the INCB, which is the Israeli National Cyber Bureau, uh, and uh, uh, comes to that job from having been a lawyer with the uh, um, Data Protection Authority of Israel. Is that right? Yes, I was the legal advisor of the Data Protection Authority before Moving to cybersecurity, and um, uh, the, uh, the the INCB is part of the Prime Minister's office, so it is exactly. at the apex of Israeli the Israeli government, uh, mm-hmm. and um, uh, responsible for coordinating um, the defense of the country against cyber attacks. Is that right? Yes, uh, the, on the high level uh, policy and preparation and um, strategy. So uh, Israel, um, in many ways, is a is a sort of um, uh, even more uh, um, uh, focused on cybersecurity than the United States, and uh, we're the two countries, at least in the West, that uh, have focused um, most attention on developing cybersecurity industries and responding to cyber attacks. Uh, uh, can you tell me the kinds of issues that you're struggling with now as a result of uh, uh, the changes in the last year or so in the, in the climate in Israel? So basically, we've protected critical infrastructures uh, since 2002. And uh, this is something that we were uh, pretty advanced at the time. And we, we have them under a rather detailed and good regulation. And these are, these are regulations that tell people you must have cybersecurity plans in place, you must respond to incidents, you need to have updated uh, cybersecurity technology as the attacks change. Uh, so this is a sort of a generalized regulatory approach? To- uh, it's, uh, it's a lot more tailor-made because it's uh, uh, um, around several... Um, specific critical infrastructures which are highly regulated. Ah, okay, so the, the, the power industry. The power industry, the waterworks, things like that. This is a very specific, high-level uh, type regulatory regime, detailed, with a lot of attention, so they're okay. very well um, protected, but the cyber domain, of course, gives us challenges from all sorts of areas. And uh, we need something which is uh, scalable and across the board. So what we've been doing is uh, looking at uh, what is the role of the state, of the government in this domain. And uh, the basic problem is that this uh, domain used to be something that only the organizations and the private sector dealt with. But now we see, I guess, a call for the government to come in. We've seen these attacks in the U.S., for instance, on corporations which are smart, have resources, know their information security, have valuable information 
assets, and yet again they were attacked successfully. And these are these are corporations that are outside of what most people would consider critical infrastructure. You know, it's hard to to, to treat motion pictures as a critical infrastructure. Uh, exactly. I, I quote that uh, statement from the head of the NSA. He said this in Fordham's speech. We have uh, had 16 uh, critical infrastructure, but we didn't think of the Motion Picture Association as a, as a critical infrastructure. In any case, uh, so uh, moving from that uh, premise, we need to see what the role of the government is. And the comprehensive is Israeli policy looks at the organization and the government in three type of uh, interactions. And uh, the first one is the need for a better uh, organizational resilience. So uh, we, the government need to incentivize and regulate basically organizations so they're better prepared. And this is the more straightforward thing that we know in developed economies of the government, I would say, in the offline world. So the government issuing regulations, inspecting, and, and our system... But that would be, to, to do that, to get resilience mm -hmm. across the board, you have to essentially say everybody who has a computer or every business that has a computer mm -hmm. has to have some plan for resilience. Is that right? Well, I, I think that uh, this, uh, this is, has to be risk-based, basically. So uh, what we're thinking about is doing it, uh, or what we're deploying is doing it basically by the sector-specific regulators. So okay. we, we, we know that regulators today have a, a mission to ensure that sectors which they regulate function and serve their, 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 perform their mission. And uh, therefore, uh, what we want to make sure is that they take account of the cyber risk as part of it, but mm -hmm. in as far as possible a uniform manner, so as to enable the security market uh, to be useful. So... This is the, the one part of the regulation, uh, the regulation of the demand for cybersecurity services and for cybersecurity in general. And the other t area which we're moving into as government is the regulation of supply. So basically like the U.S. Uh, initiative in the area of the workforce, the NICE initiative by NIST, this is something we're treading softly into. Um, well, my impression is that uh, Unit 8200 is sort of the equivalent of the National Security Agency. It's the uh, Israeli Defense Force uh, unit that does cyber defense and, and offense, uh, and it's an elite part of the uh, uh, the Army. Uh, uh, kids who think they might want to do a startup join it as the, the way kids go to Stanford in, in the United States and then start their, uh, um, uh, their companies as soon as they, they come out. Um, you're already contributing a lot to the supply of people in the cybersecurity industry, aren't you? Yes, but uh, I think, uh, first of all, again, this is uh, one of the edges that we take the, the brightest kids uh, out of high school and they go to uh, the Army and learn all about cybersecurity, and this gives uh, a lot of edge. But what we're talking about here is the more uh, the issues of organizational defense. So these are the people in charge of defense within organizations, mm -hmm. and this is uh, a domain which is not developed enough. You know, when a little corporation wants or a medium corporation wants to buy cybersecurity services. I'm not sure that the uh, army training in this area is the, the exact mm -hmm. thing. I mean, you need organizational strategies. You need to know security products. So I'm not sure that this is the same uh, the same domain. Mm -hmm. It's different professions, maybe. And um, 
So this is the regulatory role, and then we have the, uh, a major thing, which is the online role of the state, we call it. It's, it's the, basically talked about as, we talk about it as the CERT, and what's around the CERT. This is the role of the government as helping in real time. Okay, so it's response. It's uh, response. And um, this, uh, this is, again, we're setting up uh, an authority which will help uh, uh, organizations in real time mitigate uh, events and, of course, do the whole information sharing. So in the U.S., when people find themselves in the middle of a response, uh, they often call the FBI, which is um, not exactly what you do. It's not exactly a law enforcement role or it's only partially a law enforcement role, but the FBI has uh, begun to expand what it does for, for companies uh, in the middle of a response. DHS has some role in these things. Uh, have you allocated this between law enforcement and uh, non-law enforcement agencies? This is a work in progress, but basically uh, the, we're building a sole purpose agency for cybersecurity, uh, which uh, is supposed to be a one-stop shop for the for the civilian uh, organizations. And uh, I guess that uh, in some of the areas when there's criminal uh, events or other events, then uh, it will need to call in or get assistance from other agencies. But the main thing is that uh, it's supposed to do the, the first type of assistance before you know what type of event is it? Right? Uh, whether it's national security or yeah. law enforcement or uh, just uh, uh, a, uh, a screw-up of some kind. And also, it, uh, this is something that we know about uh, advanced defense, is that you need to foil the attack even before you know who the attacker is. And there's right. a lot of things you can do to mitigate attacks which uh, do not really require the whole law enforcement process of knowing who is at the end. Of course, that's very important. But these things have different time spans. So we want to mitigate the attack and then maybe do other things. So this, is, this sounds, in, in a sense, as though, it, at least in Israel, the agency, this agency is going to look more like DHS or DHS uh, with muscle than... Uh, the um, uh, than the FBI. It's, it, it is uh, a security agency first, a response agency first, and a law enforcement agency second or by referral. I, I don't think at all it will be a law enforcement agency at all. It's uh, exactly, I, I think you're right that it's closer to the DHS, and this was one of the things that uh, were uh, important in the setting up of this authority. Two reasons for a new authority. The One was um, the thought that this is a new field and we need new doctrines, so we need new institutional thinking. And uh, the other thing is that we wanted checks and balances within the system, so we didn't want an authority, uh, uh, an existing authority, to do any of these jobs because it has a lot of, a lot of interface with civilian cybersphere. So the, 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 I have to say, this is a really big job, which means it's going to have to be a pretty big authority. How how big do you imagine the authority will be? Well, this is still under discussion with our budgets people, but it will be big. Yeah. I mean, it will be big, and it will need to be very agile. This is uh, something that we're uh, we're building up because it will need to do. Uh, yeah, it's going so, to do so the real time. Thing. So what what I have discovered about my career, looking back at it, uh, is I've spent a lot of time 
doing startups in government. I, I started the education department uh, uh, at the beginning of my career. DHS was a startup. Uh, and um, it's a remarkably foolish uh, career choice <laughs> I because when you start out, you imagine there will be this agile the institution that will do all these things well. Uh, uh, but then as, when you start it, it, it does nothing well because n- there's nobody there who's been doing the job for more than three months. Uh, it looks like five-year-old soccer, uh, everybody chasing the ball, nobody playing their position. Uh, and so there's a real risk that you'll... Uh, encounter some of the problems DHS did, which is that there were a few things they did very well where there was top-down attention and a lot of things that uh, where they didn't get attention and just didn't get done well, and one of them was cybersecurity, and that's why DHS has the reputation that it has. Uh, how, how are you going to avoid that? Are you actually going to take people from existing organizations, uh, uh, because otherwise my guess is you're going to have the same problem DHS has. So, so this is not really a legal question, uh, but an no, organizational right. question, but I've been in, in government long enough, and I'm at the, in organizations long enough, and I, I share your uh, views because I was one of the founders of the Israeli DPA. So <laughs> what I can uh, tell you is that, uh, yes, we're taking people from existing organizations with hands-on experience, so they're very experienced in what they're doing. And we're also tapping into the market very strongly, right? So because this is a sphere in which government in some areas doesn't really have an edge. Uh, And we have um, one of the things we're doing is some of the services in our CERT, which is going to be set up in Be'er Sheva, are going to be supplied by contractors under government. So we have a lot of manpower under that, which Mm -hmm. is we're tapping into actually the the computer high tech employment uh, employment uh, market we have to compete with them of course this is a problem in israel but nevertheless we we are aware of this issue and uh, uh the the head of the agency buki carmeli who was just chosen is a veteran both in the army and in startups he, he's had uh, a lot of experience in setting up these organizations he says that uh, the only reason he has ears is to stop his smile uh, uh, crossing his face because he's so excited about this job. So this oh, is, good. Okay. I can tell you about this. Yeah, I, so I, relying on contractors, which DHS did a lot of, uh, I was not enthusiastic about it because uh, my sense was that in the long run, the contractor's interest is in doing big, comprehensive make-work projects that sound like a good thing, and everybody says, oh, yes, we should have a comprehensive overview of X and Y, uh, as, and, and to do things that don't get them in trouble, right? So they don't want to make tough decisions for fear they'll develop an enemy uh, and the enemy will kill their contract. Uh, um, so it's very hard to use contractors to do things that um, are controversial. So, so this again, now this comes to the legal issues, because this is what we've done also in the legal setup of this. So we have top managers and top procedures, which will be uh, handled by civil servants, actually. So, mm-hmm. so we, we are going to be watching our contractors very well, and actually we're using them um, to supply the know-how and the, and, the, and the techniques and the people, but they will be managed by 
by, by civil servants, obviously, trying to deal with this issue, which we know from IT supply. So, so he, that means that uh, you get to make all the decisions that will make enemies. Exactly. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> uh, exactly. So, so you're working on, on legislation to try to uh, give content to uh, uh, some of the things the authority is going to be doing. What are the hard issues that you're struggling with as you, as you draft that? So the, the, the first issue is the conceptual issue, right? Because uh, cyberspace and the Internet and has developed without the state in them, right? And, and, and Western democracies basically, this is my previous job and my previous, previous job, kept the law away from, from cyberspace, right? We, we had this laissez-faire type right. of thing, mm -hmm. and now the state is coming in with its institutions and the law. So the first thing is conceptual. How do you build a law which is uh, friendly and uh, keeps innovation and promotes trust in what we're doing? And this is why we're doing it, right? If the private sector could defend cyberspace, the state wouldn't come in, but it's not doing that. Right. So this is the first challenge. How do you build state authority which looks and creates trust. The other thing is that these different roles that we have in our strategy for the government as regulator, as an online support and real-time assistance, which is not law enforcement, each of these has its own, um, I guess, constitutional administrative law contexts. And in each of these, you need to have different checks and balances. So if we were building a regulatory law, we would look at the costs and the, the implications for businesses. So this is one area which we have to do mm -hmm. checks and balances. When we look at uh, information sharing and assistance, we're worried about civil rights and about basically the privacy discussion, about government sharing information. And when we do uh, government as, uh, as assisting uh, corporations or maybe even responding or mitigating events in real time, well, we need the government, you know, to, to have some authority to do these types of things and then keep them away from law enforcement or other areas. So if we're thinking about the fire metaphor, if I have a fire, in, in there's a fire in my neighbor's house and he's not at home, the fire brigade will need to break the door. Now, this is private property. So you need to have the authority to break the door, but then now... When do you break the door? What are the circumstances? What are the checks and balances? What is the oversight? What is the accountability? And this is, um, these are the questions that we will have to answer. Um, uh, and, and all of those are questions. I mean, if, if, if we had to write a code for firefighters today uh, with EFF's help, mm -hmm. uh, we'd never get to the end of it uh, because they'd be saying, well, do you really have to break down the door? Can't you just uh, break a window and put the, the hose through the window? Uh, and uh, uh, trying to, to, to write rules in the current climate, which is much more hostile to government agency action than uh, uh, say uh, 40 years ago, uh, makes it much tougher because you have to imagine a whole set of circumstances where you'll have to act uh, and then imagine what authorities you need. And then when you state those authorities in the abstract, they're going to sound as though it's the second coming of uh, uh, Big Brother. I, I agree. And it's always the hard cases because they, they'll ask you about the, the, the marginal case, which is the, the theoretical civil liberties type uh, worst case scenario. I know this because I was in data protection before, so I know how to, to go about the <laughs> argument. Pretty, pretty good at thinking up yeah. the, the worst case. Yes. Yeah, so, so basically what we need to do, in, and this is what I'm thinking, is we take the best model that we have for proportional type of 
powers by government uh, with the fact-finding and professional um, uh, opinions and the sliding scale of, of use of this authority. And uh, so this is how I, I see it. I see that the authority, the use of powers will be a last resort if something else doesn't uh-huh. work. And this can be shown. So this is... I, I think that you're, you're probably right, that you want to take it to a pretty high level of abstraction, right? Uh, uh, and rely on pinning responsibility at a high enough level and then have transpa- having transparency and after-action review mm-hmm. uh, so that you can develop a kind of common law of what's proportional and what's appropriate in, in circumstances rather than trying to write a code of conduct in advance. And, and, and the one thing that comes to my assistance here is the, the issue that we're setting up a new institution so we can silo Yes. This type of thing, and uh, this setting up of an institution, it will be um, it will be checked not according to the amount of cases it brings to court or prosecutions. It will be checked about cybersecurity. This is its main mission. Right. So uh, when we look at the false positives of government authority, the areas where things went wrong, I think that when an authority is uh, judged upon its um, um, performance in cybersecurity, this is the best check because the head of the authority doesn't want to fail there. Right. He will focus there. And because this institution, this is what it does, the dangers from other things going wrong are limited because it doesn't have the whole scale of powers that other institutions in government have. So even in the worst case scenario, we can limit the damage. This, mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. this, is, this organization won't be putting people in jail. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't have the power to stop people and take them, you know, to the, the whole sliding scale of things that are, can happen when you interact with government. So uh, the, the other uh, question you raised is uh, where does privacy uh, and the cybersecurity balance fall mm-hmm. uh, and how do you structure that? Uh, we've, we've just gone through a debate over the Cybersecurity Act in the United States uh, and um, I came here and gave a little talk in which I, I, I said, uh, what are the lessons from that uh, for Israel? Probably none, because it seemed to me that we were dealing with a very specific set of uh, privacy rules that had gotten outmoded and had to be revised. And then the privacy groups responded by saying, well, we want all kinds of new privacy stuff. Uh, but I, uh, that debate, which they spurred, was when can information sharing lead to the disclosure of personally identifiable information, and uh, is that a bad thing? Is that going to be uh, um, a, a result in an intrusive state? Uh, and I gather that you're struggling in part with the question of when information sharing ought to be uh, um, restricted, anonymized, uh, uh, and the like. And have you got an idea where that balance is likely to end up here in Israel? Well, I'm hoping that uh, we can... Uh internalize the risk of privacy within the authority. So what we are thinking about, and this is an idea of the INCB head, uh, Dr. Evyatar Metanya, like behavioral economics, right? We don't want to chill the corporations from reporting to us. Mm-hmm. So we want to take the risk that we have PII to the, to the authority, and we will delete it if it's PII without authorization. So we don't ah, want the screening yeah. to be done by the companies. Right. We don't want to go through the legal departments of companies. We want the, the, the chief 
information security officers connecting between each other without the lawyers, I'm sorry to say. Oh, no, no, I, 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 uh, the, a, a former uh, National Security Council legal advisor once described me as a self-loathing lawyer. I, uh, and so I, I'm completely with you. And that actually, that's, that is largely, but unfortunately not completely, the solution the U.S. arrived at, too. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, DHS is going to have the responsibility of scraping PII out of this uh, this data, but there is a preliminary scrape that unfortunately will be done, hopefully not by the lawyers, but by somebody at the companies. Uh, so, so this is, uh, this is, I have two, two or three remarks regarding this. The first one, of course, coming from data protection. So we should recall that the dangers to privacy and autonomy in 99% of these scenarios is not really there because we're not after what the users are thinking or doing on their machines. Right. which is what maybe some other agencies may look for, but we are more for what their machines are doing. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a typical hard drive, I think about 70 or 80% of the information on a hard drive is not PII, it's about the computer. You know, these, com- these machines log themselves obsessively, and this is what we're looking for when we're doing cybersecurity. So it's information about computers. Mm-hmm. And then you have the incidental PII. And here comes in uh, things like sticks or other things which talk about the context, okay? So we're not running here at... Sticks is the DHS uh, taxonomy of data that can be supplied uh, in an information sharing context. Exactly. It's a uniform language trying to structure all this unstructured, if you like, data coming from a lot of information systems, coming from a lot of information security technologies, trying to describe the same phenomenon, right? It's an attack going on, but we're describing it in different ways, and we don't really understand what's going on. So how can we share this? In any case, when you look at sticks, it's contextually uh, focused to describe cyber attacks. Mm-hmm. And this is very different from other areas where the PII is part of a description about a person, right? If we have a database in the Ministry of Interior, you use the PII to describe something about a person. And when we talk about a cybersecurity authority, it's not running these types of databases about the population because it doesn't have an interaction with the population. It doesn't supply services. It doesn't do law enforcement. So I think this incidental PII poses a lot less risks than one can think of at first blush. Mm -hmm. The final issue that we should be aware, and of course this is the holy grail in data protection and in other areas today, talking about big data, is the anonymization sanitization game. Mm -hmm. So we're still looking for this one one solution that can strongly enough anonymize data, but we have to take risks here. And what we're developing is the, the issue of relational risks at the end of the day. So if as privacy advocates, we would like the silver bullet that would anonymize data totally and we can do big data analysis about it. That probably won't happen. So we have to take our risks there. And in this case specifically, I'm thinking that to, to put the burden of anonymization at this early stage when technology is still developing, maybe taking too much risk, uh, uh, in cybersecurity. So I'm thinking for the relative risk, of course, this is a, a value call by policymakers, but uh, if there's a risk of me unintendedly seeing a PII of somebody in a cybersecurity authority or missing a, a cyber attack, I think the consequences are, are, very, are very different. And we're in the game basically in cybersecurity now 
of the false positive, false negative game, and we have to think what are the consequences of each one of these false positives. So I'm, I'm, I'm profoundly skeptical about anonymization. Uh, first, in a world of big data analysis, uh, no anonymization stays anonymous. So it, everything is de-anonymizable uh, or re-identifiable. Uh, but anonymization can be good enough to make it uh, to, to significantly affect your ability to defend yourself. So uh, you get the, the worst of both worlds. It's not really anonymized, but it is less useful. Um, and at the end of the day, if re-identification is possible, the only way to prevent that is with uh, tailored rules that tell people there are certain things you may not do. You'll, you'll, we're going to give you this data. Do not re-identify it. Well, if you're going to rely on telling people there are some things you may not do with the data, why don't you just tell them we're giving you the data and then there are certain things you may not do with the real data as opposed to the anonymized data. I, I agree exactly. And this is why, I mean, we have to remember that in the real world, the world of databases where they have PII, not anonymized PII, we live with that fine. We have FIPS. We have fair information practice principles. And we have developed these over the years. So we know a lot of things and, uh, about how we do transparency and audit trails and checks and balances. So we live in a world in which people touch PII. Right. So uh, it's not the end of the game. It's just the beginning. And then we put checks and balances which are downstream. So, All right. Well, Amit, uh, Amit Ashkenazi, uh, the uh, uh, chief legal advisor to the uh, Israeli National Cyber Bureau, uh, uh, thank you very much for, uh, for your insights. I, I, I'll offer you one uh, last uh, uh, opportunity. Uh, are there any speeches or papers or public appearances that you'll be making that you want the, uh, our listeners to know about? At this point, I don't have anything planned because I have a lot of work locally. All right. I, I hear you're, you're going to, NS, to RSA unless you have to spend the, that time drafting your legislation. Yeah, it's actually not, not really yet uh, discussed, so I'm not sure. I okay. Will go <laughs> All right. Many thanks. Thank you. All right, that uh, wraps up our uh, program. Thanks, uh, Amit. Uh, thanks to Alan Cohn, Jason Weinstein, Maury Schenk uh, uh, for participating. Uh, for I, I guess I, I should uh, ask if anybody here has, uh, uh, as I asked Amit, has any uh, speeches or events they want to uh, promote. Uh, on March 3rd, uh, I'll be moderating a panel of law enforcement and industry reps uh, at a, a, a blockchain summit that's being sponsored by the Chamber of Digital Commerce here at, in D.C. It'll be Georgetown University. It's the first local D.C. blockchain summit that's geared toward policymakers and decision makers in, in uh, the federal government, and we're really looking forward to it. All right. Well, that should be good. Uh, yeah, we, we, we need to bring back some more uh, Bitcoin news, uh, uh, or maybe I can offload a uh, uh, an interview uh, to you, and you can you can pick some newsmakers from that group. And Actually, Alan and I are lining some up uh, as we speak. Excellent. I I think there needs to be a kind of uh, regular Bitcoin tutorial ongoing in this program. Uh, all right, uh, Alan. Any uh, other speeches? Uh, we're all we're, we're going to be at RSA. Uh, Doing this essentially, uh, 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 recording the podcast, uh, I, and then I'm doing a hackback panel uh, uh, later in uh, at RSA. Um, other things that uh, are on my schedule: South by Southwest, 
crypto. Oh. Uh, March 14. Uh, uh, March 16, there's a shareholder actions in cybersecurity conference in New York City that I'm doing. Uh, uh, April 15, Penn State has a symposium on cyber terrorism, which should be interesting. Uh, and uh, in May, I'm going to be out in Los Angeles talking to the Young President's Organization on cybersecurity topics. So uh, lots of moving around the uh, the country if you live on either coast uh, and you want to hear more of me, uh, that, that would be a big surprise, but uh, 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 you'll have that chance. Uh, uh, the Stepto Cyber Law uh, podcast is still open to feedback and we're getting some good stuff. Uh, I have to say, uh, great uh, uh, conversations that have been launched there. Uh, uh, so send uh, your uh, uh, thoughts to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave us a message at 202-862-5785 or just leave us a good review on iTunes. Uh, This has been episode 99 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we've got two live recordings of the podcast. Uh, Here's something that should have been on our calendar. On February 18, just after uh, uh, Valentine's Day, I think, uh, from 6 to 9, we're going to be holding the second Beer Summit uh, uh, with the Lawfare team from Rational Security at uh, the Washington Firehouse, 1626 North Capitol Street, uh, uh, Northwest. For those of you who went to the first one, it was a great event. Uh, um, we are uh, uh, even better with a little liquor in us, uh, and uh, we definitely will be doing it with liquor in us um, uh, there. Uh, and on March 3, we're going to be doing the RSA conference, which we've already talked about. Uh, so we hope you'll join us uh, then uh, and uh, uh, online as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.